0: So you're going to have your ups and downs in the short and medium terms, thanks to interest rates, thanks to fiscal policies, thanks to a lot of different factors, macroeconomic factors, recessions and so on. But guess what? As Peter Lynch once said, we have had historically 13 recessions and we've had 13 recoveries out of those recessions.
1: I'm Mary Long and that's Motley Fool senior analyst Yasser Elshimi. If a growth stock gets cut in half, is it on sale or just less expensive? Ricky Mulvey caught up with Yasser to discuss the macro landscape for high growth companies, a mission critical software company now trading at half its IPO price, and a rocket maker with galactic ambitions. When others get fearful, it's time to do something. I forget the rest of the quote. Anyway, joining us now to talk about some strong growthy companies in a down cycle is Motley Fool Senior Analyst Yasser El-Shimi. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Hi, Ricky. Good to be here. When I think about investing in super growthy companies, I almost think of it as like a venture capital approach. Would, would you agree with that?
0: Yes. So, you know, our Motley Fool co-founder and chief rule breaker, David Garner, has in fact, kind of almost coined that term of a VC approach towards public investing. You know, in that approach, you look for young, innovative, relatively small companies with massive runways for future growth, great products, invested leadership, and ideally a purposeful mission. And, you know, ideally, also you want to have your portfolio reflect your best vision for the future. And that's kind of like even when you see in the VC world where a lot of investors tend to back companies that they feel strongly about, you may want to also do that with your own personal investment portfolio. And one thing we have to keep in mind also with the kind of VC style of investing is that VC investors tend to hold their investments over very long periods of time and even tend to upsize their stakes in those companies that show themselves to be resilient and successful. So as David
1: Gardner would say, you should add to your winners, water your flowers and trim your weeds. I'd also say that the VCs tend to have a couple of big winners that make up for, in, in a lot of cases, the a majority of losses. When it comes to my style of, in, of investing, I like to, I like to have a, a mix of things. Do you go for this high growth approach for, for all of your stocks? So no, I don't.
0: And you're absolutely right by the way that, you know, only a few of the companies that you'd invest in using that VC kind of approach would work out and, you know, most of the companies that you'd invest in may not generate the kind of returns you were hoping for. However, over a very long period of time, those companies, those investments uh, that do work out and those companies that do perform are going to generate hopefully the kind of returns that should more than make up for any losses you've incurred holding those uh let's call them weeds for now. But back to your your bigger question which is kind of investing strategy here. I would say that, you know, the rule breaker style of investing or the high growth style of investing that I I follow is not does not represent the entirety of my portfolio. I tend to try and invest across many different strategies as someone who's Thinks of investing in terms of decades as opposed to years. I do lean more towards that rule breaker style of investing because I know that I, I have the stomach to hold those companies over very long periods of time and, and stomach the volatility. But not everybody can do that, obviously. Uh, and it's, it's a really hard thing to do. But even so, even if I can't stomach those, those kinds of churns, those kinds of gyrations and, 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 and those stocks, You know, I still like to hold companies that are more stable, more established. They own my fair share of what I consider to be balanced growth companies, small, mid-cap, profitable growth, even value sometimes. So I don't say
1: that I'm an ideologue uh, when it comes to investing philosophy. Being an ideologue and an investor seems to not work out for many of them. Being a growth investor was much, much easier a couple of years ago. The aphorism, don't fight the Fed is carrying out right now. As earlier this week, while the Fed signaled that it's going to pause its interest rate hikes, the risk-free rate of return right now is above 5%. Feel free to disagree. But I think this matters for growth investors because not caring about Fed actions was a lot easier a few years ago. And now it's, it would seem that growth investors have to pay a lot more attention to it. Yeah, you're definitely right. I mean, if you just take a look at uh,
0: Twitter, in, you know, in in bull markets everybody's a growth investor. In bear markets everybody wants to park their cash in the bank just get that that interest or even go after dividend paying stocks. But, you know, here at the fool we are fundamental bottoms up investors. We'll like love to look at companies and, you know, and we think that fundamental company performance is the main determinant of returns over time. So you're going to have your ups and downs in the short and medium terms thanks to interest rates, thanks to fiscal policies, thanks to a lot of different factors, macroeconomic factors, recessions, and so on. But guess what? As Peter Lynch once said, we have had historically 13 recessions and we've had 13 recoveries out of those recessions. And if you zoom out and do not get consumed by the headlines of the day, you're likely to do well over time. As long as, of course, you put all of your energy and focus into selecting companies that you fundamentally believe in, that you think can outperform the market and make money over
1: time. So let's dive into some of those growthy companies that have been hit, not just Carvana. One of them that you brought to the table is Confluent, ticker CFLT. This is one that has been cut in half since its IPO, despite a bump on surprising earnings. This is a tricky company to describe even even from watching youtube videos and tutorials about it. So so to set the table, what does this company do? Yeah, you wouldn't be the only
0: one to have difficulty to kind of fully understand what they do. So, think of the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once. Before Confluent companies used to collect data, store it either in data center or on premise or in the cloud and then analyze it and act on it. Confluent founders, they thought that the system was inefficient, slow, and full of blind spots. And so they invented Apache Kafka, which is an open source data streaming platform that lets you move and process data in real time. Now, as soon as data is received from the source, it is immediately transmitted across, across the entire tech stack of the business, analyzed by all applications and software programs, and acted upon, again, in real time. Now, Confluent, as a company, uh, was built to fully maintain, manage, and improve on Apache with what they called Confluent Kafka. So, let me, let me give, give this analogy, and maybe this is one that only train enthusiasts can fully appreciate, but I'll make it anyway. If Apache was a train cart that moved products from point A to point B, Confluent is a whole rail network with autonomously driven trains that takes stuff everywhere all the time now companies of course have the option to use the open source apache kafka version but they will unfortunately need to maintain or dedicate many members of their it team to operate and 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 sustain that that program and that takes them away from doing the kind of work that they can that can actually be valuable to the company's you know core product or value added so The ROI for many companies using Confluent Kafka is significant as it cuts down on these operating
1: expenses by a large margin. So I know the train analogy, the train network, the train cars, data in motion. I'll pretend that I got it, but what's a real life example where one might see Confluence technology in action? So, you know, actually,
0: chances are you have use the technology, even though you may not have actually realized you're using the Kafka technology. But you know, one good example for, of that is Instacart. A service like Instacart needs to have real-time visibility and instantaneous analysis of everything that's happening all the time, where the shoppers are at all times, what products are they collecting, what products are missing, and therefore they need to suggest replacements for and give customers uh, an, a time estimate for the order arrival and so on. That's just one example. Another example is if someone uses your debit card in an unusual location for an unusual purchase or withdrawal, the transaction can immediately be flagged as fraudulent. The bank puts a hold on the card. It notifies you. All of this happening instantaneously and across the the board. Another example could be uh, a stock exchange where millions of buy and sell orders are constantly flowing through and you need to execute on those in the most efficient and transparent manner possible. And so we'll find like a stock exchange like Euronext, for example, in Europe deploys the, 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 kaf, the confluent Kafka uh, technology. So I could go on, but Kafka is essentially what enables a lot of this real-time action, and it quickly becomes mission-critical, not just a nice-to-have software.
1: It's when you don't have time to go back and forth from database to action with uh, whatever that action might be in a stock exchange. Inventory at a grocery store for Instacart or debit cards when, when someone's using it in an unfamiliar place. I want to talk about the financials a little bit with Confluent because I like it. it has high inside ownership. That's good. It's a sticky product. That's mission critical. That's good. But it also loses gobs and gobs of cash. In its latest quarter, its operating loss a about equaled its total revenue. And this seems to be a habit of having a massive operating loss. Maybe it's because Confluent gives out a lot of free software. Uh, What's it need to do to be profitable?
0: Well, you're absolutely right. They have been burning through a lot of cash, but it's important to put things in context. First, I would say that Confluent is still a relatively young company, less than 10 years old. And even within uh, those nine years of existence that they've been at, not even not fully nine yet, um, but even during those years, they've started out with a Confluent program, which is an on-premise offering, and they've moved from that to Confluent Cloud, which is a hybrid or cloud first offering that any company can use and so they're still kind of inter- still on the part of introducing the market to what this product is and the full capability of how this product can be used to transform the business and give good returns on investment so i, I you know understandably they have prioritized growth over profitability in in this young age now secondly the company has shown it understands that you know the 0% interest rates you know are not going to are not coming back anytime soon and the time has come to prioritize self-funding and so they've guided towards reaching adjusted EBITDA profitability this year and positive free cash flow next year all while growing sales by nearly 30% year over year. They have been also rationalizing their workforce, optimizing their sales, focusing on high return projects. And some of their expenses have been going towards going to prospective clients, demonstrating what Confluent can do for their business, and signing them up. That is still important, but not maybe Top of the list anymore, and maybe some of the existing big clients can provide you know higher profitability for for Confluent, and that's what they're gonna prioritize.
1: I got two pushbacks for you from the latest call. CEO Jay Kreps said, "Quote: The Confluent has less than five Kafka engineers on call for tens of thousands of production in Kafka clusters. That gives us a cost structure for operation." That we believe is a hundred, is a thousand times better than our customers. End quote. So it seems like they're they're being efficient on labor costs from the call, but I haven't seen that reflected in the company's operating margins, and also while the company is young it's it's already had a huge adoption cycle more than more than half of fortune 500 companies use Confluence software as of 2021 so that's that's one reason I'm a, or two reasons I should say i remain a little skeptical and hesitant so let me start with the last part of your question first about
0: the use the wide adoption of Kafka now it's important to actually kind of make clear that when we say that 75 percent of fortune 500 companies use Kafka they are in fact using Apache Kafka, which is the free version, the free open source version of the software. So this, in fact, gives Confluent an opportunity to sell them on its flagship product and and move them into that self managed or fully automated, I would say, uh, data streaming platform that that Confluent offers. Now, and, you know, they they actually estimate their total addressable market at sixty billion dollars, whereas in fact, their trailing twelve month sales came at just over six hundred million dollars. So so. You know, a lot of green grass left. Now, going to your first question about their operating expenses, I would say that that's not managing the data streaming platform has not been where Confluence expenses have gone. They've gone mostly towards building servers, for example, which is part of the value proposition that they are offering to their prospective customers. When you come, when you when you go to to a modern enterprise that has potentially hundreds of different servers with dozens of tech staff, IT staff, who's literally manning the data streaming platform, the Apache Kafka, the open source version. And you're telling them, you don't need to worry about any of this. You don't need the servers. You don't need... You know, most of the IT people to dedicate all of their time and energy towards, you know, managing this this platform. We will do all of this for you from the back end. So the value pr- proposition here is very clear to prospective customers that the total cost of ownership here, the return on investment from migrating towards the confluence product the fully automated managed product is going to actually save them a lot of time and a lot of money so that that to me is um is definitely one of the strong points that uh, confluent has
1: let's 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 move to a bleeding edge tech company or more bleeding edge which is rocket lab usa this launches satellites and is working on a neutron rocket it is a space startup that went public via spac unfortunately that gives me vibes and memories of virgin galactic What does this company do? What's the case for Rocket Lab? Oh, boy, you don't want to be in the same sentence as Virgin Galactic if you're a space
0: company. I personally have never understood the case for space tourism. Uh, I mean, who would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to fly just to the edge of the earth and come back down in a few minutes? But I'm, I'm probably not the targeted audience here. Yeah. So Rocket Lab is not one of those companies. Yes, it came public via SPAC and that Will forever tarnish any company that that ever did so after the painful experience of 2021, 2022. But you know, I, I think there is something here. This is a company that is focused squarely in the commercial, government, and research space use cases. It has a long and flawless record of successful rocket launches. has plenty of serious customers, including NASA, the U.S. Space Force, and many universities and communication companies across the world. So, you know, why do I think it's a good investment? Well you know, the company is fast becoming another top dog with SpaceX in the commercial space industry. Launching rockets, carrying satellites and returning them successfully is not easy as it sounds. It is literally rocket science. We have had and we have seen so many failed launches by so many new entrants and and newcomers into this space, including the likes of Relativity Space, Firefly, Astrospace, and and I I could go on. Even SpaceX, they just had a, a failed launch with their Starship a couple of weeks ago. So Rocket Lab can, in fact, be proud of its pristine launch uh, launch record here. Second, I would say that we have we actually have a global shortage, anticipated global shortage of launch capacity in the coming years. We may currently have over 100,000 licenses obtained to launch satellites in, in, into space, but nowhere near enough capacity to get them there. And that is even if we assume the likes of blue origin and united launch alliance will be successful to get their rockets off the ground and back safely so you know uh, you know finally uh, you know I, uh, just looking even at the numbers i could tell you that the consensus analyst estimates on s&p cap iq are for sales to quadruple over the next 5 years and for Locket, rocket lab to become profitable in 2 years i can also tell you that when I build my model, lower assumptions than those by analysts have, I find the shares to offer plenty of upside opportunity. And just one thing I keenly look for in rule breaker type high growth investments is that I want to find them at a valuation that is reasonable against expected future earnings. And at less than 10 times 20 26 ev ebit multiples for such a high growth and young company with clear competitive advantages sounds good to me as a patient long term investor so much has to go right of course for these earnings to flow through and for this investment to be successful and that's why you know trust in management product and business strategy becomes key but of course things could go
1: wrong like with many of these kinds of companies yeah, I'm really knocking on wood after you said flawless launch record. And, and, and to clear something up, EV to EBIT basically means the enterprise value of the company, how much it's worth compared to uh, the company's earnings before interest and taxes. Startups are great, but it seems like size matters in this case. Can, can Rocket Lab reasonably compete against the aforementioned SpaceX, against Boeing, which, which builds jet engines as well? Yeah, well, size does
0: matter, but not in the way you think. This field has been dominated by very large rockets carrying very large payloads. SpaceX is the top dog here, no question about it. Rocket Lab, however, has carved a niche of launching reusable small rockets because they cost less to launch and are faster to schedule for takeoff. The Electron has a sticker, which is made by Rocket Lab, has a sticker price of $7.5 million compared to SpaceX's Falcon 9, which will cost you $60 million. That's a big difference. Also, Rocket Lab, unlike SpaceX, is a one-stop shop for most space needs, including satellite building, Components, software, operations command center, radios, and solar panel systems, et cetera, et cetera. And this is why we have seen defense companies like Lockheed Martin placing orders with Rocket Lab for these kinds of systems. You know, in defense, the ability to launch quickly is critical, and Rocket Lab can offer that thanks to its three launch pads, including in New Zealand, where there are fewer airspace restrictions on launches than here in the US, and because they can, or they're working towards refurbishing their rockets and launching them pretty quickly soon after. Finally, Rocket Lab is working on Neutron, which is a larger rocket capable of carrying up to 13,000 kilogram payload into the lower Earth orbit. 2000 kilograms to the moon or 1500 kilograms to mars and venus it should also be capable of human space flight but the primary goal of this one is to compete with spacex on launching heavy very heavy satellites
1: and mega constellations of satellites one one potential yellow flag about rocket lab that uh, our colleague alex friedman brought up is that it has some like pretty poor reviews on glassdoor i think just 50 percent of the employee base would recommend working working there to a friend is that is that, a, is that a yellow flag for you?
0: So, y- yes and no. I mean, it, it definitely gives me pause when I you know when I look at Glassdoor for ratings. I, I do obviously want to see the the you know the higher ratings, uh, more positive ratings for the for the CEO, for the company culture, and, and so on. But it's not the complete picture. You know, again, if we take a st- step back. Here, we have a managed, a management team that hails from a fairly impressive group of companies and organizations, including General Dynamics, NASA, SpaceX, Broadcom, Aerojet, Rocketdyne, among others. We also have very strong ownership by CEO and founder, Peter Baker, who owns around 11.5% of the company. And even more confusingly, when you look at other Company review websites, including in this case Comparably, for example, they have much higher scores. So they give a CEO rating of 90 out of 100 and, you know, executive rating of 75 out of 100. So it's kind of a mixed picture, uh, I would say, where it comes to these websites. Can never really tell how accurate they are, what methodology they're using. And therefore, I I just want to kind of like follow closely and see what's going on there and if there's anything to that. But ultimately, you know, so, if you are working in the space industry, if you're in the business of making rockets, you're probably overworked. You're probably working long hours. Very high chances of failure. Very cutting edge research projects you're working on. So, I, I can imagine it be a stressful environment.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of the complaints are about overwork, work life balance, that kind of thing. And I'm, I'm I'm not trying to sound cold or dismissive, but like I don't see how you I don't see how a how a space company is run without just an absolute maniac in charge. And I'm not accusing Peter Beck of being a maniac, but...
0: I think he will wear that badge with honor.
1: <laughs> fair enough. Uh, let's, let's do a quick, quick check on the numbers before we wrap up. Rocket Lab is unprofitable on an operating business and launching rockets sure sounds expensive. You mentioned that they can reuse some engines, but is that enough of a story for this company to scale into profitability? Yeah, so
0: just to be clear, they have not started reusing their engines just yet. They have run tests to 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 check whether they can, and so far they report that they have been able to to get their engines to work after they have landed back on Earth. But yeah, see, I think you raise a very important point here, which is kind of the profitability or lack thereof for this business on an operating basis. Again, like Confluent, like I was saying was Confluent early, earlier. This is a relatively young company, still long path of growth ahead and for this business to generate a lot of operating profits it's going to have to first launch more rockets more frequently reuse the missiles including the engines become a vendor of choice for most space needs and more importantly it's going to need for the new neutron uh, rocket to actually work. One of the worst things that could possibly happen for the, for this company, and for this as an investment idea, is for the neutron to fail. If that was to happen, that's, that's going to be a s- serious blow to this company's balance sheet and pros- future prospects. Now, zooming out beyond the operating expenses, we should see CapEx. Peaking this year as a lot of the spending on new manufacturing facilities, new launch pads, and the Neutron program kind of is undertaken, and we get to towards the
1: end of that. Final question, Yasser, what's it going to take to convince you to ride on a Neutron rocket? I don't think you can pay me enough. <laughs> Yasser Alshami, appreciate your insight and for telling us about these companies. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interests in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Mary Long. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.